Um, we've got uh, tons to lay as far as groundwork. We're in a sermon series uh, for you, those of you that may be just joining us, um, where we're going over the storyline of the Bible. And so what it leaves us to, um, doing is it leaves us almost every week with laying groundwork before we can get into the text, historical groundwork. And so we find ourselves there um, again this morning. And so let me just pray for us. Um, Father in heaven, as we, in a few minutes, as we think about historical events, historical people, um, timeline, dates, like may it not just be a lesson in history, but may we, as we study this, may we see a pattern emerging, the pattern of your faithfulness, your, as we just sang, your sovereign grace, despite our sinfulness, despite the fact that we run from you, that we're prone to wander. Even, even though we, we feel it in our hearts, we're prone to leave the God we love. There are those who have yet to come to know your love and have their love awakened, Lord. And yet you, in your sovereign grace and your goodness, you, you pursue us. And so, Lord, may that be what we, what we leave here seeing. We see the pursuit of, a, of yourself. It's in your name we pray, amen. Well, today we're gonna be in a text of scripture of 2 Kings chapter 22. And so if you were here last week, what you will probably notice if you're in 2 Kings chapter 22, you're gonna be, you, you may be like this, you may be like, hey, wait a minute. Last week we were in the book of Hosea and Hosea, if you were using a pew Bible, is on page 753 and 2 Kings chapter 22 is page 329. Wait a minute, Andy, we're going the wrong way here. We should be getting that. Those numbers should get bigger and bigger. You know, we're going the wrong way, kind of like the wrong way we're going in our in-person gathering plan. You know, we've started off, we were at two services with a lot of people, and now we're back down to 10 people in the sanctuary this morning. We're going the wrong way in the sermon. We're going the wrong way in that, and we're not going the wrong way uh, in either. In both of them, we trust the Lord. We certainly aren't going the wrong way in the sermon text. And so the books of Kings, first and Kings, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles—they're they're producing a timeline, their historical narrative, and so they're running parallel with with the the prophets in the Old Testament, the sixteen writing prophets that are happening. They're running parallel with that, and Ezra, and Nehemiah, uh, Lamentations—they're all running kind of parallel. That we have the the same thing that'll happen in the New Testament with the Book of Acts. Coming out of the book of Acts as it's laying down a, a timeline will we'll be Ephesians, Philippians, Corinthians. Those books will be written in this timeline. And similar to the way that we have like the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and John, they're all telling the same events from different perspectives. So you have that here with Kings and Chronicles. And they're, like I said, they're laying down the foundation. They're covering about 400 years of history. So we're in 2 Kings chapter 22, but let me lay this foundation for you. Last week, as we talked about Hosea, we talked about the fact that Hosea is a prophet to the Northern Kingdom, to Israel, and he's calling them to covenant faithfulness. He's calling Israel to see, uh, to see God and not to spurn his love, but despite Hosea's prophecies, despite Isaiah's work, still nevertheless, the Israelites will not turn um, the northern kingdom of, I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah, the northern kingdom of Israel will continue to be unfaithful and continue to spurn God's love. And um, God will send his judgment. That judgment will come as he's prophesied in the year 722 BC as Syria 
invades and ultimately conquers the nation of Israel. And this is war. Some have called it, um, some have called what, a, what occurs there and would occur again in 586 in Judah as those exiles, they call those the um, first two holocausts of the Jewish people. And what happens is, is as Assyria takes over, many of the, uh, many Israelites are put to death. But then on top of that, what happens is all of the capable, capable men, all of the artisans, all of the craftsmen, all of the, the people that would serve in the army, they are exiled. They're taken from the land. The nation is annexed. And then the Assyrians even bring in Gentiles. So pagans from all around their empire, they come in and they settle, they take over the land. They begin farming that. They begin to marry the Israelites. Um, you're familiar with the Samaritans in the day of Jesus. The woman at the well is a Samaritan. Where, as you're uh, familiar with that, this is the origins of that occurring. But the Bible is very clear that this isn't just a historical event, but what's occurring here is God's judgment coming upon Israel for their idolatry. And this should have been a, a shot across the bow. This should have been a, a warning gong for Judah that Judah is now very vulnerable. So the, the nation to the, to the south, they're now very vulnerable to the Assyrians in the north. And the Assyrians, they're even, they're even on a tirade. Like they will, they will descend down into Judah and they will conquer many of the northern cities of Judah. Um, Sennacherib, who is the Assyrian king. Um, if you can't remember that name, um, imagine this, you invite me over for a barbecue guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to snatch a rib off of that grill right out of that smoker. I'll do it. Believe that. And that's this man's name. His name is Sennacherib. He's the Assyrian kings. He has forces uh, march all the way down to Jerusalem and lay siege um, in Jerusalem. And this is about in the year 705 BC. It's during that time that we think that the temple suffered some damages to being done to it. And that'll kind of show up in the, in the text even um, at a later date this morning. By God's grace and by his providence, actually it was in last week's text in the book of Hosea, God spares Judah for a time. And remember that Judah's where the Davidic line is. So they'll have 20 different kings, um, but all of them will be from one family, the family of David, King David. And now they've had some good kings and they've had some bad kings. And so I know it's a lot to keep up with. You got kings, you got two, you got two nations, you've got 16 writing prophets, you've got other prophets. I know it's a lot to keep track of. I've been saying this often. This is the, the part of the Bible that even gets fuzzy for me, but uh, um, this, this is important. And let me give for you four kings during this time from the time of Israel's um, uh, exile until almost like this will take us on the precipice of the time of Judah's exile. Let me give you four kings that you probably need to know, but it also sets up this pattern. So the first king is King Hezekiah. And I know you're like, hey, Andy, it's early in the morning. I haven't even got out of bed. I haven't even brushed my teeth yet. You know, I'm just now getting the coffee on and you're giving me a history lesson. This is important. Like I said, it's more than a history lesson, but it sets up a picture of God's faithfulness so you have King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was actually a good king. Um, he, led Israel, he led Judah into a time of reform. He's the king that whenever the uh, exile of Israel takes place, and so he's the one that catches that shot across the bow. And so he's going to um, lead Israel, I mean, going to lead Judah into a time of repentance and institute reforms, but they will be short-lived. The next king that will follow will be his son, King Manasseh. Now, he's one of the major kings you need to know in the Old Testament. King Manasseh is a terrible king. He is the most wicked king. 
In fact, the Bible will declare that he will do more wickedness than even the Canaanites did. That Manasseh is a terrible king. Um, Idolatry will run rampant, even to the point that um, he will go into the temple. So again, you've got the, the king of Judah going into the temple, Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. He will remove many of the pieces that have been there since the tabernacle. Other pieces have come in and he will replace them with pagan images. Let that sink in for just a moment. But also as a side note of God's sovereign grace, we can also say this about Manasseh. Late in King Manasseh's life, he repents and he turns toward the Lord. Manasseh dies and his son Ammon takes the throne. King Ammon, um, like his father, pre-repentance is a bad king, but he's not around very long, about two years um, as reigning and ruling as king. He is assassinated. And then Ammon's son, Josiah, is crowned king. And King Josiah, I think, is sometimes a forgotten, a forgotten king, possibly a forgotten hero in the Bible. And so if you have your Bibles or your Bible app, 2 Kings chapter 22, and this is what the word of the Lord says. It says, Josiah was eight years old. I'll pause here. I don't know what you were doing when you were eight years old. I know when I was eight years old, I was pretending to be Luke Skywalker or Indiana Jones. Temple of Doom had yet to come out. My grandfather had yet to take me to see it, but we had saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so I was probably running around in one of my, grand, in my grandfather's fedora with a whip that he made me, cracking a whip. But King Josiah, he is the king over Judah. So when Josiah was eight years old, he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of uh, Adiah of Bozkath. He did, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he walked all the way of David, his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now, this is so important here. First of all, when it says his father, David, like David was not his father, but he's in that lineage. That's why it's saying his father, David. But what's most important is, is that um, at a young age, uh, Josiah began to seek the Lord. That's the way the book of Chronicles puts it. He began to seek the Lord. And we've talked about this in the past, that as the king went, so did the the nation go. A good king and under a good king, the nation would experience prosperity and the blessings of God. And that's the tension that's happening all throughout this time is that they're they're waiting on a a good king to show up. That's the tension throughout the, the, the whole Bible is they're waiting on uh, a good king, the king of kings to show up as even we are waiting in a season of waiting, even ourselves. As Josiah began to look around the nation and began to, to just see what he, everything that he saw, Josiah notices that outside of the palace, he sees the temple and he notices that the temple is in disrepair. And so he begins a restoration project. He begins to collect money. He's asking for offerings of the people so that they can rebuild and fix up um, the temple. So the money's collected, workers are procured. And so we'll read on in the text. We'll, um, we're into verse number, um, verse number three. In the 18th year of King Josiah, so he's 26 now, the king sent Shephan, the son of Azila, son of Meshulam, the secretary to the house of the Lord, saying, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest. So it's a lot of names in there. The king is Josiah. Shephan, uh, Shep, yeah, Shephan is the secretary, the king's secretary. 
and the high priest is a man by the name of Hilkiah. So go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have, have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. And let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house. So that is to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons. And let them use it for the buying timber and quarried sown to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them, for the money is delivered into their hands, for they deal honestly, which is a good side note. If you're going to have a contractor work on your home, get an honest person. We'll read on. And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and he reported to the king, your servants had emptied out the money that was found in the house and they've delivered it into the hands of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes and the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Achim the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of that person and Shaphan the secretary and Isaiah the king's servant saying, go, here's what I want you to do. Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah concerning the words of this book that have been found for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. And so as the workers are working in the temple, as history tells us that as the workers are working in, that they find in a, in a, in a storage room, maybe it was in part of what, what was, had been uh, damaged. Maybe it was, um, happened whenever Manasseh was reigning. Maybe that's whenever the book of the law was taken out of the temple. Maybe it was whenever uh, Sennacherib came in and you know, damaged the temple. But nevertheless, there's been a period of time inside the temple that the book of the law has been lost, has been misplaced. It's, it's not there. And thus, it's been forgotten by the people. And then what occurs is it's found and it's brought to ultimately to King Josiah and it's read. And so what is this book of the law? Well, we don't know exactly. We certainly, it's probably from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Um, some say it was the book of Deuteronomy because as we see what follows, what the reforms that he sets out, we don't really know. Some would even have suggested due to the language used in Kings and Chronicles that it was an original autograph, that it was originally written by, by the prophet Moses. And now they have this. Uh, that's not what is as much as what is important. What we do know this is that it was the word of God. And Josiah saw it as such. Josiah saw it as needed. He saw it as authoritative. And what we see is we see Josiah's response to the word of God. It says that as Josiah hears the word of God being read to him, that he becomes so emotionally distraught that he, that he rips at his clothes. He, he rips his, his, maybe it's his outer garments. He, he rips them. It's a mixture of grief and of anger. The commentator, uh, commentator Matthew Henry, he says this, that he long thought the case of his kingdom was bad 
by reason of the idolatries and the impieties that had been found among them. But he never thought it was so bad as he perceived it to be by the book of the law now read to him. He knew they were in bad shape. He knew as he saw the temple in disrepair. He knew as he saw the idolatry that was taking place in the people. But then when he heard the book of the law read, he was moved by grief. The rending of his clothes signifies the rending of his own heart. The rending of his heart for the dishonor done to God and the ruin that he sees coming toward God's people for their idolatry. This is a picture that Josiah is broken. He's broken and he's undone. Before he knew anything about God, before this time, he only knew about God through the study of David, maybe through the study of some of the other prophets. And now he's, it's as if he's hearing God's word being read to him for the first time and he's broken. He's broken by his own sin. He's broken by the sin of his people. He's broken by the thunderings of God's wrath coming toward his people and he's terrified and he leads them into reforms. Look at what the king does. We'll flip over into, into 2 Kings 23. We'll read the first few verses. Then the king sent all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem and they were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him, all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with his heart and with his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. That what also occurs is, is that uh, Josiah, as he looks, he, he also, not only does he call the people to covenant faithfulness, but he also begins to purge the land of all of the um, idolatries. I, I want to read this, uh, just this short part from 2 Chronicles 34, and we'll, we'll tie that into the application portion in the sermon later on. 2 Chronicles 34, it says this, in the 12th year, I'm in verse number three, in the 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, and the, car, and the carved and the metal images. Look at what he says. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces, the ashram and the carved and the, carved and the metal images. And he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests so they would worship the relics, the bones of pagan religious leaders. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars and he cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, and Ephraim and Simeon, as far as Nepali, in the ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the ashram and the image into powder and cut down all the incense altars through all, throughout all the land of Israel. Josiah isn't messing around. He utterly destroys the idols. He tears them down. He grinds them up. He burns the bones. He breaks the altars to the false God. And next what follows is he institutes the Passover again. It's a time of remembering. 
There's been some period of time where they, the, uh, the inhabitants of Judah haven't even, the faithful Jews there, they haven't even had a formal time of Passover, a time to come together to remember God's release from Exodus, to remember God who gave them a sacrificial lamb, a Passover lamb to be applied by, the, by uh, to his blood to be applied over the doorposts and the lintel. It's a picture of God's faithfulness of God's wrath passing over his people by their, by their act of faith. And what happens following is God blesses the efforts of Josiah and the people. And for a short period of time, the people enjoy a time of prosperity. In fact, we even see, you know, the, they're, they're in a time where they're not being taken over in, by military force that God temporarily suspends his judgment upon Judah during the reign of Josiah. And Josiah and the people, they enjoy a time of prosperity and blessing. Now I'm gonna give for you two words that we would be remiss in this period of time if we didn't offer up these two words. And I don't know that we've talked about them much. The first word is the word remnant. And the second word is the word revival. The first word is the word remnant. That ever since the Garden of Eden, there has been opposition to the people of God. That in the garden, we see a serpent who comes, who opposes the people of God. And if we fast forward all throughout this storyline, that's what we've seen is God's people are oftentimes, and stand, people stand in opposition to them. Oftentimes they're persecuted. We saw that under Pharaoh in Exodus. That was true for Gideon in the book of Judges. It's true for David when Saul sought to kill him. It's true for Elijah when he's opposed by Ahab and Jezebel. It's true during the reign of Manasseh. Manasseh kills and murders a lot of the faithful Jews. He hated God. He hated the people of God. He hated the book of God. He hated the worship of God. He hated all of that. And so he persecutes them. It'll be true again when the Babylonians invade Judah, when they destroy the temple. It will be true again some 500 years later in 186 BC when the Greek king comes and invades Jerusalem and captures the city. He will march into the Jewish temple He will erect a statue of Zeus in the temple. He will sacrifice a pig on the altar of incense. He will spill the blood of the people of God and the women of God like crazy. He hated them. He tried to destroy every copy of God's word that he could possibly make, every portion of worship of God. He made it illegal and outlawed. There is always opposition to the work of God, to the kingdom of God going forward. Yet despite the best efforts of Satan and of his satanic emissaries, God will preserve a people for himself. That people is the remnant. In 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah will go and Elijah will be praying and Elijah will feel all alone as if he's the only prophet. I mean, this is how he feels as if I'm the only one and he's praying to God. And this is in 1 Kings 19, but Paul picks that up in Romans chapter 11. Remember, Paul says, everything written for us in the past is written for our benefit. And Paul says this in Romans chapter 11, verse two, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel, for they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. They're after me even. But what is it God's reply to him? This is what God replies to Elijah. He says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant who have been chosen by grace. 
But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would be no longer be grace. In every generation, in every period of time, as an act of God's sovereign grace and true to his promises, God preserves a faithful people who persevere despite persecution. And that is good for us to know that God's people will be a people who will be marked by perseverance. We will be, our faith in God will be evidenced by our, our perseverance. And I say that to us in this time when who knows if persecution is around the corner. I mean, we don't know that, but I say that to us to say this, fight the drift. Like we're not in a time of persecution, but I don't know about you, but I find my heart easily set adrift by, 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 by even what appears to be the coming of persecution. And yet God's people are a people who will persevere. So persevere, dear saints. Persevere in hard times. As I have a daughter who's preparing herself to go off to college, we're having lots of discussions. I'm just saying that everything that we believe in Everything that we believe in, everything that the Bible tells us, it's, it's seemingly, we live in a society that is anti that and against that. Two words to you, stay sweet, stay gracious, and be bold. And the same thing I would say to us, may we be gracious in our speech and in how we, how we articulate the faith and how we defend the faith. May we say kind and may we say, may we say gracious in that. And may we be bold. May we be bold. And may we know that God is always, and God will always preserve a remnant, a group of faithful followers. That is the idea of remnant. And the question is, are you part of that remnant? Are you part of the faithful ones? Are you part of those, as Peter writes in 1 Peter, that you're being guarded by your faith? Your faith is God's work, God's grace that is guarding you. That's the first word is the word remnant. The second word is the word revival. They go hand in hand. Revival. That's what we see in this rhythm between Hezekiah and Manasseh. Ammon gets left out. Josiah goes on down. That's the rhythm of Judah. That our natural tendency as man is to drift towards idolatry and sin and God and his grace. He refuses to leave us to our waywardness, but he sends his spirit. He raises up godly leaders and he draws us back to himself. He sends us his word and his spirit. And sometimes God does this in a huge way. Sometimes the people are drawn to God in, in worship and in obedience in a, in a big way that revival occurs as we read throughout scripture, that revival occurs personally. We see this happening even in the text with Josiah. As Josiah, it happens in him personally. And then it happens corporately. And sometimes churches throughout history can become hotbeds of revival, hotbeds of, the, of God pouring out his spirit, of God um, calling people to repentance and bringing salvation to people. Occasionally, God does it nationally. We see this historically through the Great Awakening and then the Second Great Awakening through the Azusa Street Revival in the early 1900s or possibly even the Jesus movement that happened on the West Coast in the late 1960s. We understand the need for revival, at least personally. Every one of us watching, we probably all have felt that, that drift, that drift into a kind of lifelessness, lethargy, backsliding, indifference, weakness. And what is needed 
is revival. Not that we're dead like we were whenever Paul says we're dead in our trespasses and our sins. Not that we're dead and need to be revived like that again, but we just need, we need a fresh move of God and the power of a spirit upon our hearts. We understand that our hearts run cold and what we see happening in King Josiah, what we see happening in Judah is the, the ingredients, if I could say it like that, the ingredients for revival. This is not a formula. This is not how we coerce God into doing something that he has not already determined himself to do. In fact, what we're really seeing, and as we, we're gonna make a list here in just a second, what we're really seeing is the evidence of God's move. If it wasn't for God moving by his grace, then we wouldn't see any of these things happen. We wouldn't see any of these things take place. So I was thinking about this, it reminded me, uh, um, whenever I was a young boy, I was in Boy Scouts and man, my scout leader, uh, I had two scout leaders. One of them was a man by the name of John Halsey and he was, a, he was something else. One, uh, just, a, just a unique guy. He was a, a, a combat veteran from, uh, who served in Vietnam and he was grisly and grisly and rough and tough. And one time we were on a camp out and it had been raining all day and all night. And the next morning he got up and Mr. Halsey got up and he said, I need some coffee. Boys get together. He said, you better make a fire so I can boil some water so I can make some coffee. If I don't have coffee uh, as soon as possible, I'm gonna get really grumpy, which we couldn't even imagine seeing Mr. Halsey get really grumpy because he was always grumpy. And so we all got together and we're trying to make uh, we're trying to make a fire, but the wood is wet. And so finally one of the boys pulls out a lighter and he says, no, you can't use a lighter. So we got flint and steel. We're trying all these different methods to make light, to make a fire. We can't do it. We got our kindling just right. We've got some wood placed on it, all that. And finally, after a few minutes, Mr. Halsey says, boys, back up. And he pulls out a torch. And comes up a fire. And we go, hey, that's cheating. He said, no, I said you couldn't like use a lighter. I didn't say anything, but you couldn't use a torch. Like that, that is what we do. Like we provide, when it comes to spiritual renewal and spiritual revival, we put all of the kindling in place, but we can't manufacture the fire. We can't manufacture the, the spark that God has to do that. We have to ask God, God, do that. Bring a spark and our real prayer is God, bring a torch and light our hearts on fire. And that torch is revival. And I don't know about you, but I find myself in a place where I could, where I could use that. I could use the, the torch of God's fire, the torch of God's passion burning into my heart. So let me give you a couple of these ingredients for revival, whether it be revival personally or revival corporately, or if God would so move and we pray for that revival nationally, Lord, we need a revival. We pray for that. We would ask you to pour out your spirit. So what are these ingredients? Well, number one, we see this in Josiah, wholehearted worship. That's the first one is wholehearted worship. It says that Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and he walked in all of the ways of David, his father. And here's the part, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. It is, he's singularly focused. He's focused on worshiping God, following after God, obeying God. That is his focus. He's not turning to the, to the left. He's not turning to the right. He's staying focused in that. What undergirds all of this true about Josiah is that Josiah has a tender heart. He has a humble heart. When he heard of the, the voice of the, when he heard the word of the Lord, he has a penitent heart. It's the opposite of a hard heart. 
He's seeking God. He's fighting the drift. He's paddling, he's moving, he's, he's doing something. That's what I mean by wholehearted worship. He's desirous of God. The ministry of John Piper is called Desiring God. It's a good thing for us to desire God. It's a great book. I, I would highly recommend it. There's a book called Desiring God and a book called when I, what, what to Do When I Don't Desire God. Read both of them because they're fantastic works because it begins there with a, with a desire as evidence of God's grace, as a desire to follow God, to know God, to seek after God, to worship God. It begins there. Again, it's the opposite of hardening of our heart. It's the opposite of apathy. It's the opposite of indifference, of doing nothing. What Josiah does at a very young age, but it doesn't matter your age. If you can hear, if you can hear my voice today, then do not harden your heart, as the writer of Hebrews says, but soften your heart, turn towards the Lord, seek, be determined. That's the picture, be determined to follow after God. The first one is a wholehearted worship. The second is a resurgence of the reading and the study and the application of God's word. There is no move and there's never been a move of God apart from a dedication to his word. Oh, that we as the Point Community Church may not be like Judah in the temple who lose focus, lose sight, who forget God's word. May it be central. You know, in the early days of the of the um, pandemic that um, they were talking about how the virus needed to may grow on some surfaces and all of that. And we came in and we removed all of the pew Bibles from the backs of the pews. But then we read somewhere, oh no, no, that's fine. Uh, it doesn't grow there like it is. And you don't have to worry about paper. It doesn't all that. And the first thing we put back was we put Bibles back into the pews, not welcome cards, not offering slips, Bibles. Bibles, all the furniture in this place could be done away with. What we would need is we just need the pulpit, the place where God's word would be laid open before his people. We need a table to offer up the Lord's supper on from time to time. And that's it. That's it. But may it be said true of our own hearts and our own lives May there be a resurgence of the Bible, of reading and study and application of God's word. That's what we see taking place. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God, it's living and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow and of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The writer of Hebrews says that the Bible is divine. It's alive and it makes things alive. Good grief, it makes things alive. It's active, it pierces, it divides, it discerns, it exposes, it judges. That's what happened on the day of Josiah. As the word was being read, what was being revealed was the wrath of God coming against their idolatry and their sin. And that is why Josiah is provoked in his spirit that he rips his clothes. Lastly, there is repentance, wholehearted worship, resurgence of the reading of study and application of God's word. And lastly, repentance, and I'll bring in two ideas introduced by the, by the Puritans, the idea of mortification and vivification. That what repentance is, biblically speaking, it is a, it, it, it's, a, it's a turning. It's a turning from and a turning to. The turning from is mortification. The turning to is vivification. You're turning from your, your flesh. You're turning from your sin. You're turning from idolatry 
You're putting it to death. That's what mortification, we think of, like as we think about mortification, I, you know, we'd say he or she was mortified. We think that means to be embarrassed, but that's not what this means. It doesn't mean you're embarrassed of your sin, although we should be. But what it means is to put to death. That's what this term means. And we put to death and we destroy our sin, our works of the flesh, our idols in the same way that Josiah did. That's why I read that in second in 2 Chronicles part 34, he utterly destroys them. He grinds them up. It's reminiscent of what Moses does whenever he comes down off the mountain and finds the children of Israel worshiping a golden calf. He has that golden calf destroyed and then he grinds it up and he puts it into their drinking water and makes, it, makes them drink it down. That's a good word for us in our idolatry and our flesh. Paul says, make no provision for the flesh. And too, all too often, we make provision for our flesh. Make provision for our lust. We make provision for our, for our lying. We make provision, all kinds of provisions for our flesh. But the apostle Paul says, do not do that. That's mortification. But there's also the need for vivification. And that's seeing God as glorious. That's what we're turning toward. We're turning toward the beauty of God, the glory of God the graciousness of God. It's training and instructing our hearts to, to, to not just desire God, but to cherish God, to be satisfied by God, to find him as glorious and to find him as, as beautiful. Rooted in all of that is the need for the message of the gospel. One of the first things that Josiah did is, as I said, is he institutes the Passover, a time of remembering. And that's what we need as well, is we need to remember that it is, that God's wrath has passed over us. Those who by faith, we apply the shed blood of the sacrificial lamb of Jesus upon our hearts. Nothing stirs our vivification like the gospel. That's why Martin Luther in his commentary to the book of Galatians, he says this, this truth of the gospel is the principal article of the Christian doctrine. That's the big E on the I chart. Not what you must do for God, but what Christ has done and what God has done in Christ, in the person and the work of Christ. That is the principal article. He goes on, he says, most necessary is it that we know this article well, that we teach it to others, and my favorite part, and he says, and we beat it into our heads continually. That's a good word for us. That we may beat the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, that we may know it, we may believe it, we may rehearse it. We may preach it to ourselves. Ultimately, what we see in King Josiah is we see longing. We see longing, the longing for a good king, a righteous king, a king who will come and lead his people into revival, who will lead his people into worship. And ultimately that king is King Jesus. And Jesus comes. He comes to 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 bring it as a picture of grace, to, to uh, bring in a remnant of people, his church. But we too, like the children of Judah, we too, we find ourselves longing. That's why the apostle Paul writes in Philippians three, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior. We're waiting on that savior to return. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Who will, he says, transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let us pray.
we find ourselves again in a time of waiting. And while we wait, may we persevere. And perseverance isn't just white knuckling it until you return, Jesus, but perseverance is living with joy, living with hope, living with peace, living in boldness, living, proclaiming the gospel, believing the gospel, holding on to the gospel that may we, may we persevere. Even in this time of trial, may we persevere. As many of our crutches are kicked out from under us, like our, for us here at the Point Community Church, our, our gatherings, in-person gatherings, our community groups, our other Bible study groups, as they're kicked out from under us to one degree or another, Lord, may we, nevertheless, may we persevere. Lord, would you, by the, your power, would you bring would you bring revival to our hearts? The longer we're in this, in this time of uneasiness and unsettledness, I know the harder our hearts get, the more selfish our hearts get. I pray that we would be like, like what we've read in this text today, that we would be those who would experience revival. You would revive our hearts as the psalmist even cries out, revive us, revive us again, O Lord. We pray that and we ask that, Lord. We pray that you would enable us to persevere. We pray that we would be the remnant. Lord, and we would be true and we would fight the drift all for your glory as we wait. And ultimately, Jesus, we wait on you. We wait on your return, Lord. We would even say, as the church has said, historically, come, Lord Jesus, come. In your name we pray, amen.